You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Today's podcast is brought to you by Theralogics. Theralogics offers theranatal supplements to provide nutritional support before, during, and after pregnancy. All theranatal supplements are independently tested and certified by NSF International to ensure they are free from any contaminants and contain exactly what they say they do. If you're ready to start a family, theranatal has you covered every step of the way. Welcome to yet another wonderful episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center, here with Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center and Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. We're in a little bit of a time crunch today, so we're going to just hop right in and bring in our very special guest, Dr. Kate O'Leary from Midwest Fertility Services in Indiana. She's not only a board-certified reproductive endocrinologist, but she also got her start in the military doing backfilling. Dr. O'Leary, welcome. We're so glad to have you on. Can you tell our audience a little bit about what backfilling means? Thank you, guys. So backfilling means that you cover someone who might be on maternity leave in Japan or South Korea. And so I didn't do any of those things, but those options were out there. So what possessed you to go in the military in the first place? Was it just, do you have a family background of being in the military or just you were excited about the challenge or? Well, both of those actually. My dad was active duty enlisted. He was a medic. That was before I was born. And he actually said, maybe I shouldn't join the Air Force because he didn't know if I would like it. And I thought that was a challenge. And I said, I'm going to do this. I thought it'd be a good leadership opportunity. I was, I was a little bit intimidated about medical school debt as well, to be honest. I was yeah. going to Northwestern and I thought this is a great leadership experience and I won't have to worry about that. And so I proved that I could do it. Boot camp was very hard. Oh, yeah. I showed up with mascara on. <laughs> I got yelled at the first day. Oh, no. It was a good experience. People always ask, would you do it again? And I would do it again. It opened up a lot of doors for me. And I think it helped build my career. So I'm glad I did it. Well, thank you so much for your service. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for your support. You know, it's interesting. I know so many REIs, particularly that have been in the military. In fact, my whole residency program at the University of Florida, almost everybody was in the military wow. beforehand in the OBGYN department. So we'll have to talk about that afterwards. You may know some of them. <laughs> I probably do. You probably do. Well, let's go ahead and move on to some of our questions. All right. So our first question today is, hi, ladies. My husband and I connected with our fertility clinic about six months ago. And after all the testing, our ultimate recommendation is to get pregnant is IVF. I have severe endometriosis, which includes recurring endometriomas on my ovaries. I have had four surgeries in the past, six years to clean up endo and remove cysts. There's no male factor problem. We are both 34 years old. Prior to my most recent endo surgery this summer, my numbers were FSH 19, antral follicle count 6, 5 on one ovary, 1 on the other, AMH at 1.6. At my HSG, I was told I have a hydrosalpinx and my tubes are not functioning properly. I am feeling discouraged at the thought of paying for IVF only to lose our savings without a baby in the end. Any advice as to whether or not we have a chance at this? 
Not FSH in 19. Yeah, the FSH didn't match with the AMH. The AMH is pretty good, but the FSH of 19 is really concerning. I wonder if it was drawn on day three or if it was a random FSH. Maybe it was random. True, yeah. It could have been a random FSH. But even if it's a random, that's... That's a nasty random. Well, it kind of tells you that her endometriosis is pretty bad too because she has a hydrocelpinx probably from her endometriosis. And it seems like sometimes even young women can have pretty bad AMHs um, with endometriosis, particularly, and she didn't mention, I don't think, but has she had endometriomas removed? Did she make a comment about that? Yeah, she's had endometriomas removed and she's had four surgeries in the past six years. That's removing yeah, a lot of cysts. And every time you remove a cyst, you're going to remove some eggs. Yeah. So that's potential damage to all the little tiny eggs on your ovaries. I mean, it's one of those things with IVF, you never know until you try. I mean, her AMH is really kind of the bright spot and all of it. It sounds like it's a good number, but, you know, unfortunately with an FSH of 19, you just don't know until you start to stimulate whether it's going to work or not. And probably in most programs, um, and I'm not sure about her program, but generally if you get to day five or six and you're not really stimulating very well at all, probably your doctor would talk to you about canceling your cycle and stopping before you spent, you know, a lot of money. The majority of the cost is usually the egg retrieval and growing embryos in the lab, et cetera. So, you know, I think if you're going to do it, now's the time to do it. I wouldn't wait another year or two. And, you know, you just don't know until you try. Exactly. And, you know, age is the highest predictor of success. So even though we may not get many eggs at retrieval, maybe the quality will still be there because we haven't gotten into our late 30s yet. But I agree with at least trying, probably the physician will make a protocol that's pretty aggressive to try to recruit as many eggs as possible. You're never going to know if you don't try. Um, and I have a decent number of professional gamblers who are patients. And, <laughs> and you're not joking. Not at all. Like these people are, when you think about what we do on a regular basis, we are discussing odds with patients. All the time. And most patients don't have a great sense of what that means. The gamblers do. And so they tend to have a really pragmatic approach to it of, you know, look, if we will never win if we don't try. I get that it's not perfect. And they kind of approach it of it's only money. Money can be earned. And that's a big shift in how most of our patients think about this, because most of our patients are very like they have worked their butts off to get that kind of money, to be able to spend it on an IVF cycle and to approach it with the attitude of we might be throwing this away is very, very different. But the professional gamblers see it for what it is. And it's it's odds. When you're talking about a football stadium worth of people, you can say, look, with an FSH of 19 at age 34, an AMH of 1.6, you have X percentage of going home with a baby. And that's considerably lower than most of your other 34-year-old cohorts because of that FSH. But it's also not a 0% chance. And so, you know, they kind of approach it of like, hey, we'll try it. The worst that's going to happen is we're not going to get anything, but we already don't have anything now. And so why the hell not? And it's, it is a very different approach. And it's a very refreshing one because it means that a lot of the really agonizing discussions that we have about, well, this is the money and this is the probability and da, da, da. da they're just like, you do what you do best and let's give it a shot. That's awesome. Let's roll the dice. Yeah. It kind of helps to approach like that. I'm like, well, it's money. And yes, if you lose it, it sucks. But at the same time, 
you at least get an answer of, I tried with my own eggs. This didn't work. Okay. Let's talk about egg donation. Let's talk about embryo donation. Let's talk about adoption. Let's keep moving forward to the goal rather than be stuck in this ever circling doom cycle of, well, we, we could do it. It could not work and we could lose all this money or we could not do it, save the money and do IUIs, which in this case sound like they're a non-starter because of those hydrosalpingies. And you make the decision and you move on it and you just deal with the consequences. Yeah. All right. One more question. This question is, hi, docs. Thanks for your show. I'm 33 years old and trying to conceive my third child. I have PCOS and used Clomid to conceive my first two children. With both of my prior pregnancies, we conceived on the first cycle. We just moved to a new state and have a new clinic this time around. And my new provider is recommending Letrozole instead of Clomid, considering the risk of multiples and the fact that I already have two children. My concern is that I won't respond to Letrozole and my pregnancy pursuit will be long and drawn out this time around. What are your thoughts on using Letrozole instead of Clomid? We know that Clomid works. Should I be advocating for Clomid instead? That's a good question. Yeah, it's just a one month decision. I mean, you know, if it doesn't work, then you just move to Clomid. And, you know, you could really argue either way. I think if you're going to have to spend thousands of dollars for the medicine, you might be think it more as a big issue. But it's just it's one of those things. Just try it and see. Sometimes Femar or Letrozole can sometimes be better for the endometrium. For some patients with Clomid, the lining can be kind of thin and make it difficult for a pregnancy to implant. Honestly, I kind of agree with the patient. I kind of feel like if you did great with Clomid and you got pregnant with Clomid, why not try it? Why not do it again? Why why fix something if it's not broken? I agree. I prefer Letrozole over Clomid for patients with PCOS, but I usually default to what has worked in the past. At least try that first. And then you could always switch to Letrozole if the Clomid doesn't work this third time. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, the data is really good for Letrozole and PCOS patients, but if it's worked for you before and you haven't had 25 children, then okay, let's do it. <laughs> I mean, the worst that's going to happen is they're going to do a monitoring ultrasound and go, whoa, you have six follicles. We're not going to do this. And don't you dare touch each other this month. And then we'll revisit this next month. Good stuff. All right. Well, we're going to move on for our topic of the day. So we're going to discuss with Dr. O'Leary a little bit about when is it time to move on and start thinking about that IVF? Yeah, that's always the loaded question at our return visits when things have not worked or we're wanting to kind of strategize about what to do next. And at least when I'm counseling my patients, there are a couple different things that I'm considering and talking to the patient about. One is what is the diagnosis? Another is, you know, what treatment has been done? Another is what are your goals for family building? How many children do you want? And then the fourth important factor is what type of financial resources do you have? Do you have coverage? Do you not? Um, And that will really help shape and guide what treatment will make sense next. And oftentimes IVF does make sense depending on all of those factors. So what do you think for patients ends up being the biggest driving factor for them making the decision. Like we all know what we consider, you know, if someone's got blocked tubes, it is an IVF discussion. If someone's sperm count is really low, it is an IVF discussion. But what do you think drives patients more to make the decision in one direction or the other? Unfortunately, a lot of it is finances. That is the number one question I get is it's not about why am I not getting pregnant? How much is this going to cost? And so that's a big factor. We're not a mandated state in Indiana. So a lot of people don't have coverage, but there are people that do have coverage and they 
maybe they haven't explored it and they might have more benefits than they think. Um, That's probably the biggest thing that I see. But sometimes I see age and emotional stress as other factors that drive people to move in the IVF direction, regardless of financial status. So sometimes people are just, you've done three or four or five IUIs or done several cycles with your OB and you're just over it. You're ready to go to the most aggressive been there, got that t-shirt. Yes, you're over it. And then others who, you know, have had a discussion with their OB or with another fertility provider, you know, you're 38, you want two or three kids. Maybe, you know, if you've had that counseling, it, it makes sense from a cost benefit standpoint and in terms of achieving your family building goals to move on sooner, whether you've had one IUI or not. For some of our listeners who are maybe in that mid to upper 30s range or maybe even early 40s range, can you explain a little bit why doing IVF straight off, depending on your family building goals, might be a good idea? Yeah. For patients in their upper 30s, um, we do start to see some more dramatic changes to ovarian reserve, egg number, quantity, as well as quality. And we know that the risk of abnormal eggs starts to go up. And this explains why our pregnancy rates um, in a given cycle start to decrease in our late 30s. Some of those eggs are not normal anymore. They don't divide normally. And so the result is um, an abnormal egg that may not create a normal embryo. So that's aneuploidy. And our aneuploidy rates go up quite a bit. Under 35, you're looking at maybe 25% risk of having an abnormal embryo and over 40 or 38 to 40, sometimes over 70%. So this explains why pregnancy rates are so low and even miscarriage rates start to increase. And so moving to IVF can help address those issues by helping us have more information about those embryos for couples that might decide to screen their embryos, as well as just maximizing the chance of growing more healthy eggs and giving them the opportunity to fertilize. Kate, you mentioned the emotional component of IVF, and I know we all see patients that are really just intimidated by the whole process. It's just, it seems overwhelming to them. What would you say to those patients about IVF and about the process? Well, the first thing we talk about would be some ways to help support her and her partner through the cycle. There are things that we can do to make the cycle not as stressful, but I think that empowering the patient with knowledge about what's going to happen with her treatment plan, what will happen with her body, support the patient with the types of medications we'll be using, explain the protocol, helping give back that sense of control, I think really helps people deal with the stress going through. And more times than not, talking to patients after they've completed a cycle, they feel better. They're like, that wasn't that bad because we're controlling what we can control. And that feels good to act on things that we can control. What do you notice staying on the the kind of emotional, how do I survive this theme? What do you notice about your patients who are doing multiple IUIs that your patients may have been a little bit more surprised to see? Like they think, oh, I'm doing the, the easier treatment. And then they get a couple in that haven't worked. Like, how do you see those patients react, especially as they're trying to decide, well, do I do another one? Do I go on? Like, what do I do next? Yeah, most of them are super stressed out. They want to know why did this not work? And many times I don't have great answers for that because there's a lot that we don't control with IUIs and that's frustrating. So I feel like 
multiple IUI cycles, it ends up not being cost effective. That's an additional emotional burden, financial burden. So I do see that multiple unsuccessful cycles is detrimental to how she's feeling about the process. And some people don't even come back to do IVF. And that always makes me sad that we didn't have a chance to maybe do a treatment that would have worked for her. She was too stressed to even come back, even if she had the financial resources. Kate, can you give us kind of a ballpark? And of course, it varies at every center, but ballpark success rate with one IUI versus ballpark success rate with one IVF cycle, say in a woman under 35, for example? Yeah. So with a typical IUI, let's say letrozole is used for ovulation induction, the success rate is going to be between 10 to 15% or 10 to 12%. So that's better than not doing anything at all, especially if the couple has unexplained infertility where doing nothing would be a two to three or four percent chance of success. But that also means that eight times out of 10, the procedure is not going to work and that doesn't sound good. A typical IVF cycle for someone under 35, especially if we have information about the embryos through pre-implantation genetic testing, those success rates with the transfer of a normal chromosomally normal normal embryo, those success rates could exceed 60%, 60 to 65%, sometimes up to 70%. So it's quite different in terms of success. So it makes sense if you have the resources or if you really want to pick the strategy that's going to maximize the chance of success. And another thing I usually tell patients who are reluctant to move on, take that step to move to IVF is that a silver lining is that you could be preserving your future fertility. Maybe you think you only want one more child, just one child to complete your family, but you might change your mind in a couple of years. And if you have extra embryos available for that future decision, those embryos were created from younger eggs, that potentially um, avoids more stress and financial resources in the future. So I try to encourage people with that extra information because building your family when you want to, that's a nice option to have. The biggest number of people that I end up getting is transfer of care from another doctor is they go in for their fertility evaluation. They go sit down with their doctor and their doctor's like, you need IVF. And they relatively freak out because it's scary. And there isn't, or at least there doesn't seem to be other options available. What are some of those scenarios to kind of warn people, hey, these are scenarios that IVF is probably going to be your best option. And that's maybe a reason why your doctor is suggesting that starting off instead of trying things that are less aggressive. Yeah, there could be several scenarios. And one would be like the patient we talked about in the beginning where the tubes are not working and we potentially have very low egg reserves. So tubal factor makes sense. Another would be someone with very compromised egg reserve or decreased egg reserve who maybe we need to do everything we can to maximize their chance of pregnancy. Other issues might be significant male factor where the amount of sperm, the total modal count might not be enough for IUI to work. What levels of sperm do we need for IUI to have a decent chance? 
I like to use total modal count. I just calculate it myself and I just multiply the volume of the ejaculate by the concentration per cc by percent motility. And in general, a total modal count between 5 and 15 million um, IUI could benefit. Over 20 million would be a normal total modal count. A total modal count under 5 million, I'm usually counseling that this might not be the best chance for you. Although I let the couple ultimately make that decision. I support them in that. I'm just, I tell them I'm there to guide you and give you all the data. And ultimately you can make that choice. And maybe if you're going to proceed anyway, maybe consider moving on after one or two unsuccessful tries. Other reasons to move on to IVF more quickly could be unexplained infertility as well. Very, very frustrating diagnosis, but we know that they're in a worse prognosis group and IVF can sometimes overcome what we have not been able to diagnose. And there've been some studies in the past, like the FORT trial and the FAST trial that showed that IVF provided a higher chance of success in doing IUIs, whether with Clomid or injectables, just prolonged the time to pregnancy because many of those people needed to move on to IVF anyway. So it was more time-consuming and more expensive ultimately. So that's another area that is worth discussing. One thing that I think is good for patients to understand is that um, IVF is not only therapeutic and that we're trying to help you get pregnant, but it's also diagnostic, especially for those unexplained infertility patients. Oftentimes we're able to figure out as we're going through your IVF cycle and we actually see egg, sperm, embryos, all those things happening outside your body, chromosome <laughs> um, complement, those types of things that oftentimes we're able to figure out or at least have a much better gestalt of what may have led us down this path to begin with. Absolutely. So when you have someone who is deciding, okay, I'm going to I'm going to get off the IUI train and head towards IVF. What do you typically tell them about timing expectations? Most specifically like how soon can I start? I mean, if you're calling someone 2 weeks post IUI and say I'm really sorry, I got your pregnancy test results back and the test was negative, we can either, you know, do another IUI or we can move on to IVF and they say, "Okay, we're done. We're going to IVF." How quickly do you tell them that they can start? Is it like the first day of their period? Or do you usually tell them, look, we got to get it together for a month first before we start? Sometimes we have everything together. And if we've gotten all the testing, FDA labs, and the couple understands their benefits, sometimes we can start. But there is additional planning with injection training, ordering medications, making sure that we've explained protocols well. Consent forms are super important to read through those. Ask your doctor. You know, there's a lot of stuff to talk about. So typically, it's just one cycle before we can jump ahead. But sometimes we've had all those discussions and we can move ahead with the next day one. So it really depends. Um, there isn't a big lag time between moving from one treatment to the other. Sometimes you have to wait for prior authorizations. That's probably the rate limiting step for a lot of our patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. <laughs> That's an, an annoyance, but typically we can move ahead pretty quickly because when we have that AMH, we've done that ovarian reserve testing, which is super important at the very beginning of treatment. So we already have an idea what the intro follicle count and AMH and things like that, what type of protocol might benefit that patient the most. What do you tell patients about how they'll feel during the stimulation with the medicines and kind of recovery time after the procedure, time away from work, et cetera? 
Yeah. So with the IVF stimulation, I counsel them that you will have some bloating and that's probably the biggest thing, maybe some constipation too. The ovaries are not used to having multiple eggs growing. So you really do feel that, but most people don't really feel that significant heaviness until the very end of that 10 or 11 day window of stimulation. Some people notice a lot of cervical discharge from that estrogen. And it doesn't mean you're ovulating. (laughs) Exactly. I try to warn them because that freaks people out a lot. There may be some breast tenderness. I think a lot of patients don't typically have severe mood symptoms. Some tell me that they felt worse on Clomid than they did on the gonadotropin. So that's good. So those are the most common symptoms, although you can feel any symptom or side effect during IVF. And in terms of time off, um, one day off for that egg retrieval because you will have anesthesia. And if I tell patients, if you have the flexibility with your job to have another day off or two, that's wonderful. So you can veg out, get your comfy pants on with the elastic waistband and just chill out. Um, But some couples or patients don't have that flexibility. I know in the Air Force, a lot of people had to go back to duty the next day and they did. Yeah, they did okay. We just had light duty, but they can typically get back to their normal schedules or normal routines within a few weeks. We don't want any CrossFit or vigorous exercise training during STEM or the couple of weeks after, but people tend to feel good quickly. And, And why do you tell them they shouldn't do vigorous activity after STEM? I really don't want those big juicy ovaries to be bouncing around, <laughs> putting someone at risk for ovarian torsion or a corpus luteum, you know, assist rupturing, um, which could cause a lot of pain. And so people don't typically feel like it anyway. You say, listen to your body if you want to jump back on that Peloton, even for a mild <laughs> ride. But yeah, we want to keep her safe. I feel like, can I get back on the bike has been a, a question that I've heard more often in the past year than I have in the prior decade. Yes, all the time. Peloton has done a very good marketing campaign. (laughs) (laughs) When you are moving those leg muscles up and down, the leg muscles don't stop right at the crease in your hip. They go up and they attached further up higher and in your back. And the ovaries can very easily rest on those muscles. So if you're moving those muscles up and down, the ovaries are getting a bouncy ride there. So even though you're not necessarily bouncing up and down when you're on a stationary bike like that, the ovaries can be getting more of a ride than you think they are. So that's the reason why we're like, yeah, let's stick to walking. It's a little bit milder. You're not going to get up to 120 revolutions per minute and, uh, (laughs) you know, give it, give it a little bit of a break. It is okay to not go that fast. I can't ever do 120 revolutions, Carrie. You just made me feel bad there. Yeah, that's high. (laughs) I know how they tell you to, you know, lighten up on the resistance and go fast and then load it up super heavy and you slow down. I mean, yeah, I know. Variations. (laughs) So. Good stuff. Well, I think we've got a lot of good insight as to when to start thinking about IVF and a little bit about kind of what actually happens during the process and that type of thing. So Kate, thank you so much for joining us today. I had fun. Thank you guys. I hope to do it again sometime. Absolutely. To our audience, thank you so much for listening and be sure to tune in next week for more. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review in iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. So please hop on and leave us a like or follow and say hello. You can also visit us at fertilitydocsuncensored.com to submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously on our Ask the Doc segment. So don't hold back. And we love episode ideas. So let us know what you're thinking. 
And as always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Bye. 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 Today's podcast is also brought to you by California Cryobank. California Cryobank has 45 years of experience and a diverse selection of hundreds of highly screened sperm donors. They maintain the highest quality standards to give clients the best possible opportunity for a successful pregnancy with a client services team that supports you along the way. California Cryobank is offering Fertility Docs Uncensored listeners a special offer of a free level two subscription worth $145, which is a free 90-day subscription for access to extended donor profiles, including adult and childhood photos. Just use the code DOCS, that's D-O-C-S, at cryobank.com to find the right donor for you.